Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. That was the moment where I realized that I don't ever want to feel at the end of my life I'm a relentless human being in terms of chasing my dreams and making sure that when I do meet my final day, I can look back and not feel the way I felt on that greasy towel floor because that's the worst feeling you can have. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gathers, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Lots of people dream of doing something great someday. Writing a book, building a business, making art, traveling the world, changing the fortunes of those less fortunate. But most people die, never having fulfilled their dreams. This is an excerpt from an interview from my guest today, Matt Dixon. He is the author of Someday is Today, 22 Simple, Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life. Great interview. In his truth prescription, he talked about a story where he had a gun held to his head. And in that moment, the only thing he felt was regret, not fear, but regret because he hadn't done the things that he had wanted to do at that point in his life. And so he changed it. And after that happened, he was granted the gift of life and he went on and began to do all the things that he wanted to do. We talked about the importance of story and how that can actually help people heal traumas. We talked about the importance of your circle of friends and family and how some people should stay. Some people should not stay. It's something I actually talk about a lot. Uh, if you look at my Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. And we also discussed the idea of being lousy at something when you first start, when you're first starting something new and how it's just normal. It's just normal part of change or normal part of doing anything for the first time. So it's a great interview. Please check it out. Close your eyes and open your ears and enjoy my interview with Mr. Matthew Dix. Good people. Welcome back. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Matthew Dix. How you doing, Matthew? Very good. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Fantastic. Excited to talk to you. You're a fellow storyteller, among other things, prolific author, et cetera. So why don't we jump right into your truth prescription? Just as a reminder for folks that have looked at the show, listening to the show for the first time, what we like to talk about here is truth. And more specifically, what was the truth in your life, Matt, that you had to accept that once you accepted it created a breakthrough for you? Well, when I was 22, I was uh, managing a McDonald's restaurant in Brockton, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. And uh, after closing, 
I was sort of at the safe counting money when three men broke in through the windows with guns. They made it to the office and they started emptying the safe and they found a box at the bottom of the safe, this sort of this box that managers can't open. It's where you dump money. And there was a plaque on the box that said, you know, manager does not have key. And they didn't believe the plaque. And so, you know, I ended up on the ground. They beat me. And then eventually one of them put a gun to my head and said, I'm going to count back from three and then I'm going to pull the trigger if you don't open the box. And, you know, as he started to count back from three, I was absolutely certain I was about to die. Uh, The police had actually come to me a week before and warned me about these guys and had told me that they were robbing places and they had already killed two people. You know, someone at a Taco Bell had died and someone at another McDonald's restaurant had died. So I had no doubt that I was about to die. And the astounding thing about those seconds before I thought I was to die, I had no fear. I had no anger. I had no sadness. The only feeling I felt was regret. Mm. I was 22 years old. I had a million dreams and I had yet to really start chasing any of them. Obviously, you know, I survived. There was no bullet in the gun. They pulled the trigger several times to try to get me to open the box. And it took me a long time to sort of be able to say what I just said to you, you know, until I met my wife, I couldn't even talk about it. You know, she's, she finally sent me to therapy when she told me that this wasn't my hobby. You know, I would tell her that some people play tennis, some people collect stamps, some people wake up in the middle of the night screaming. It's just my thing. She said, it's not a thing. Go talk to somebody. And it took a long time, but I got to a place where I can talk about it now. But that was it for me. That was the moment where I realized that I don't ever want to feel at the end of my life, I'm a relentless human being in terms of chasing my dreams and making sure that when I do meet my final day, I can look back and not feel the way I felt on that greasy towel floor because that's the worst feeling you can have. And I just wrote a book about getting things done some days today. And, you know, some of the research that I did in writing the book, it turns out that hospice workers, you know, when they talk to folks in the last days of their lives, the thing that comes up the most is regret, the regret of things not done, dreams not chased, relationships that were allowed to erode, all of these things. And and I understand exactly what that feeling is. It's It's a weird gift and I wouldn't wish it upon anyone, you know, the way I received it, but it's a weird gift to believe you're at the end of your life, have an understanding of what that feels like, have an understanding of how disastrous it can feel if you haven't done anything to make your life worth what it should be. And so ever since then, I mean, it's not a surprise. Six months after that, I was in college and working like hell to make my dreams come true. Yeah, it's a it's a great story. Great, not because of the Trump traumatic aspect of it, but great because of the lemonade you were able to make out of the lemons. You and I are very aligned. And um, in the intro, I did talk about your your book and your many books. But I have a saying, which is there's no better time than the present. Similarly, you know, I've, I've had some things happen in my life that my listeners know about. But the net net coming out of it was if I don't live this life for me, then who's going to live it for me? Nobody. My hope is that people don't have to sort of experience what I experienced, but can learn from what I experienced. Like I said, I would never want anyone to have to go through that experience in order to get the the mindset that I have, but maybe just by listening to the stories and following the things that I talk about and believing 
what I say. I'm hoping that people can get, get some of the wisdom that I earned the hard way. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about knowledge, right? It's really about application. Sometimes people are hardheads, you know, they're hardheaded. And, and I agree with you. I hope that your book and your experience spurs people to, to that action, but sometimes you just got to experience things, you know, and, and if, if nothing else, yeah. people can probably learn that, you know, also from your story. Speaking of the book, Someday is Today, 22 Simple Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life. I wanted to ask you about why you use creative life. I thought that was very interesting versus just life. Why, why did you add the creative part in there? Well, a couple of reasons. One is the people that tend to come to me tend to be people who want to do something they're not doing. It's usually make something. It's whether they want to start a business, write a book, make some form of art, or really do anything that is sort of beyond themselves. I always think of as creative. So anything that you're doing that's going to produce a thing in the world that did not exist before, I see that as creative. And so I think of creativity as the person who always wanted to have a vegetable garden in their backyard. I think putting a vegetable garden in your backyard is a remarkably creative thing. I like to think that we're all trying to do something beyond ourselves. I like it when people view the seemingly small things that they do as much larger than they really are. If you learn how to bake bread today, I kind of think that's extraordinary. I can't bake bread. And for millions of years, bread was not baked. And somewhere along the way, human beings figured out how to do it. It was creative. But when you learn how to do it, when you can take, my wife does it all the time. She takes ingredients that do not look like bread, mm -hmm. don't look like they could ever be bread. And then we eat it at dinner and we're so grateful for what she's done. I see that as an act of creativity. So she makes challah, which is a special type of bread. Like my yes, mom used to make challah when I was a kid. That stuff is amazing. Yeah. I'm always amazed by anyone who can make something that didn't exist before. I actually, I have a buddy who's working on his, uh, working on his golf swing. I think that's pretty creative because I, I see it as you used to hit the ball like this and now you're hitting the ball like this. Like you've changed the way the world is for you, you know, and you've dedicated yourself to it and all the principles in some days today, you can apply it to your golf game, your baking, your vegetable garden, or if you're building a business, writing a book, painting a painting, all of those traditional what we think of as creativity, I, I just expand it into many, many areas. One of the things you talk about in the book that I teach when I work with clients is this idea of curating your circle of, of friends and colleagues and, and, and folks. Talk a little bit about the importance of that, because I, I, I usually, when I take people through, I call it the life map. One of those that letters in that M-A-A-H-P spelled is P, which is the people in your life. You know, really looking at who they are, what they bring, what you give to them and whether or not it's an equal exchange or whether or not it's even a positive exchange. So talk about that in the context of, of, of the book and, and how you communicated that. Yeah, well, if you think about every relationship with people, it's either positive, negative, or neutral. And so, you know, anyone who's giving you some positivity, you want those people in your life and you want to cultivate those relationships as best you can. There's a lot of negativity in the world though. And the more creative you are, I think the more negativity there is, you know, through envy and wishing you could be doing something. I, I just think there's a lot of people in the world who are really anxious to hurt you so that you are not something that they have to look at and be envious of. And so what you have to do is really make a decision if you need a person in your life. And then if you don't, if it's a negative relationship, you have to, you have to make a choice about how to handle it. 
getting rid of that person is always the best choice if that's possible. When I work with people, they talk about how difficult it is to have that hard conversation with someone. You know, the conversation with a friend that says, I can't be your friend anymore unless these changes happen. And I tell them that conversation is going to take 10 minutes or you could spend the next 10 years suffering. Would you rather suffer for the 10 minutes or the 10 years? Oddly, some people choose the 10 years. They'd rather just allow that relationship to linger and ruin them. So, you know, I say hard conversations are necessary. Sometimes we have to eliminate people from our lives when we can't, like if it's your sister, you probably can't eliminate her from your life, but you can do other things. You know, if your sister is a negative force in your life, one of the things I always say is ask yourself why. If your sister is negative in your life because her marriage is bad, she's having incredible difficulties with her children, you know, her her job is deeply unsatisfying. A lot of times what we can say to ourselves is she's really a negative person in my life, but it's not directed at me. She's suffering in a way that I now understand and I can feel empathy for her. It doesn't mean the negativity is going to be poof, gone away. But if you understand that it's not directed at you, if you understand there's no intentionality at you behind it, oftentimes that is enough to sort of be able to deal with that person in a really effective way. So identifying why people are being terrible to you can really be helpful in terms of mitigating the negativity they're pushing into you. And sometimes you just, sometimes you just get rid of them. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, on, on, the, on the first point, I usually teach people a six, to, six month to a year transition plan where you very sort of methodically in small increments over time, just spend less and less time either communicating with that person or spending time with that person. I don't believe in the 10 minute conversation because I think most people don't want to change. And so when you have that conversation, it's just going to be a big blowback and it's going to be a shit show. But I think for some people that day, they need to have that as well. What you said at the end about having empathy, I think is super important because so the whole point, and I don't know if the listeners understand this or get this, but I know you do. The reason you want to get negative, negative people about out your life is because they're bringing these negative energy, this negative vibration sort of into space and it sucks your energy away from you. Think about even the word negative means subtraction, right? It sucks things away from you. By having empathy, what, what you end up doing is almost creating a shield or, or a, a, a reversal where then when that negative energy comes in, you take it and you make it into something else and then just send it back out. And so instead of when you see that person, you start feeling all this negativity and anger and frustration, you feel compassion, which is the opposite. And then you can kind of yeah. move on and deal with them. Not to your point, if they're your sister, they're not going to go away. But you've suddenly almost became a magician and created a different reality. You know, I say in my book, the best thing you can do is to forgive them. I think that is beyond the capacity of many people, myself included. I think if someone has really wronged you or they have been wronging you a lot, Forgiveness is tricky. I just think that it takes a, a great human being to find forgiveness with regularity. So I like the idea of that empathy because you don't have to forgive someone. You can still acknowledge that they're doing you wrong, that they're hurting you. But as long as you understand why they're hurting you right now, you understand, all right, you're a terrible human being and I know you're making my life difficult. I'm not going to forgive you, but I'm going to understand why you're doing what you're doing. So it's not going to harm me anymore. And I think on the other side, we have to maximize the number of positive people in our lives whenever possible. I always call it my team. You know, I'm putting together my team of people who are going to help me in every way. And I'm always looking to expand my team. Absolutely. People that you can help and that can help you. 
period. One of the topics in your book that I really liked and I don't think enough people talk about was allowing yourself to kind of mess up in the beginning. Like when you first start, whatever it is, there's this like misnomer that, oh, I'm doing this new thing and everything should just be like ice cream smooth. And it's just not real. And I think when you start hitting those road bumps and the frustration uh, sets in, then that's when you start questioning yourself. But you talk a little bit about maybe uh, something in your life that you can relate to that, to that message. Well, you got to make terrible things before you make good things. There's very few people that are sort of planted on the planet and they produce perfection immediately. That's just a ridiculous thing to even think. Right. But so often if you don't make perfection the first time or, or you find, you know, negative feedback, people quit all the time. You know, I'm a novelist. You know, I've published six novels, but I can tell you that the first four novels that I started to write, I got about 20,000 words into each one of them before I was wise enough to look at them and say, no, this is not good. Like, this is not something I would want to read. And yet I just spent two or three or four months writing it. The saving grace that I had was at least I had taste and I was willing to go back and look and decide it was no good. So at least I didn't get to the end. But I know lots of authors who write three or four or five novels before one finally publishes. And I always find them extraordinary that, that they're that committed, but you have to be that committed in order to make something good. You know, you're, you're not going to be great right out the gate. And the thing people I think get confused about is that nobody really cares. No one's paying as much attention to you as they are. I was just speaking to a corporate executive who's getting ready to launch a newsletter. And she said, I'm worried that what if I don't have content every Monday? And I said, do you really think people are like sitting in their inbox waiting at nine o'clock for your for your newsletter to land? And when it doesn't land, they're going to put any thought into you whatsoever. They're just moving on with their day. We're all really busy. So if you miss a week, nobody cares, you know. So she's been working on that first newsletter for six months and she's still not ready to launch it. It should have launched six months ago. She should have just put it out there and then said, let me see when I can get the next one done. But perfectionism is a deadly thing that causes people not to get work done. Yeah. Yeah. No better time than the present, right? Some days. (laughs) Well, you know, I have so many of my friends who I say 80% and having it done is so much better than a hundred percent and never getting it done, you know, or I can get four things done over the course of a year at 80% and you get one thing done over the course of the year at a hundred percent. Who's better? Like, who's better off? You know, I suspect that I am probably doing better with my B minus work than their one A plus assignment that they're handing in. So we have to acknowledge we're we're tragically human and we're going to produce sometimes terrible things and occasionally something great. And that's the way the world is. Yeah. And to sort of not be afraid to, there's a not transparency, but almost like a It's kind of like when you're standing up on stage doing, and I'm going to talk about this next, doing your story slams, there's a level of of openness that that you have with the audience and and vulnerability. That's the word I've been looking for, a level of vulnerability. And so you have to learn a little bit of vulnerability. Like, hey, I may put this thing out there and people may tell me it's trash, but if I'm committed to it, I'll look at it, I'll tweak it and and I'll do, and I'll move on. So it's almost like, being having the strength to sort of get over the ego and focus on the end goal instead of the little little steps in between. Now I shouldn't say you didn't talk about story in in the book because I'm not sure, but I I want to go off topic a little bit and talk about story slam. I think it's amazing. 
I've seen a couple of videos of you telling a story. I love the one story you started off. You said, I'm in a closet inside of a police station. <laughs> I was like, in the basement of a police station. Yeah. Police station. I was like, That's an amazing way to start off. And you're not a cop. So it's an amazing way to start off a story. I want to talk a little bit about just the importance of story. I, I have a course that um, people have taken and continue to take called Designing Your Life Biography. And basically what it what it does is I take them through the three act structure, but I relate it to them as the protagonist. And sort of at the end, we get to them being able to curate or solve their conflict in the way that they want to see their life go. Right. Because for people that are listening, they may not know this. Act one is where you meet the characters. Act two is where they introduce the conflict. Act three is where we resolve the conflict. And a lot of people have a lot of unresolved conflicts. <laughs> and that's that's part of our issue in life. And so being a great storyteller, talk a little bit about why you think story is important in people's lives. Well, I always tell people that the most important person we tell our stories to is ourselves. So whenever I'm teaching someone to tell a story, they say, I don't want to stand on a stage. I say, that's fine. You never have to stand on a stage. Tell yourself the story. That's even more important. You know, I can't tell you how often I have a difficult thing in my life or a difficult thing in my past that's sort of lingering with me. And the moment I turn it into a story, suddenly it changes completely. You know, I was homeless for a period in my life, and it was mostly because the people who could have helped me didn't. And that was a hard thing for me to accept for a long time. And then one day I said, I'm going to turn that into a story and see what happens. And it changes everything. First of all, when you tell a story about your life, it gives it a beginning and an ending. So that sort of infection of homelessness that had bothered me, you know, well beyond that period of time in my life, suddenly I cut it off. So it's the thing that happened, a chapter in my life and not something throughout my whole life. It also, you know, I turned it into art. I gave it some craft. I stood on a stage. I told it to people. Suddenly people came to me and said, I was living to my students one day. I'm an elementary school teacher. So, you know, I told it to my students every year now, but the first time I told it, I had one of my students come up to me and she told me that over the summer, she and her mother had been living in the car. And she was worried that if they lost their apartment, she might not be able to come to school anymore. So this little girl in my class all year long had been worried that she might get kicked out of school if they get kicked out of their apartment. And I was able to sort of make that better for her. When you're crafting stories about your life, you see them clear, you see connections that you didn't see before, you afford yourself the opportunity to examine your life because most people don't think about themselves enough. We spend so much time thinking about our partners and spouses and children and parents and neighbors and clients and all those people. But storytellers are deeply curious about themselves because we're always looking for the next story. So I like to say we're self-centered in a very positive way, meaning we actually carve time out of our days to just think about us. And when you do that, suddenly you find I've done stuff. I can make sense of stuff. I can understand things in my life in new and profound ways. So I just think it's one of the best things you can do for yourself. I've also heard you say that the best stories are the, are the ones that are about you because they create a certain amount of vulnerability. They're, most, they're the most interesting are the stories that are about you. And so that, I think that, that goes to, in, that's in alignment with what you're saying. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Let's, uh, let's jump to the last section of the show, which is called first impressions. So yes. I'm going to say a word and then you're going to tell me the first word that comes to your mind. Oh, okay. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Number one, police station. Terror. <laughs> <laughs> True terror. Like it gives me a cold <laughs> feeling down my spine. <laughs> uh, number two, 
The Shawshank Redemption. A better book than a movie, even uh, though it's a fantastic movie. Okay. Haven't read, haven't read the book, but my, my second favorite movie of all time. Yeah, it's a novella, actually. It's part of three. It's part of four novellas in a book called Different Seasons. Three of them have been made into films. If you've seen Stand By Me, yeah, that story is actually in that same book. It's an extraordinary collection of four longer stories. Wow. Amazing. Okay. Yeah, the poster's right there. <laughs> uh, so when I heard you talk about it, I said, oh, that's a great one. Yeah. Number three. Chala bread. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Number four, cats. Joyous. Joyous. I mean, it's ridiculous how much I love my cats. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, elementary school. It's home for me. It's home, really. It, when I was a kid, school was the safe place for me. And um, I think that's probably why I became a teacher. So in a lot of ways, it feels like home. That's beautiful. Both my parents are teachers and my mom taught elementary school for 30 years. So I uh, turn to her. Yeah. Yeah. I'm approaching 25 and it's not easy sometimes, but it's a joyous and wonderful job. Yeah, it is. All right. Next one. The Eagle. (laughs) My first thought was the Philadelphia Eagles and I was going to say (laughs) hate them. Perspective. Perspective. There you go. You know where I'm going. Yeah, with the eagle can see, you know, the eagle flies above and sees all. And that's an important thing to be able to do. Yes. Number six, the mouse. <laughs> details. You know, the mouse is in the weeds, sees yes. all the details, which is great. Like, we got to see the details. But if you're trapped in the weeds, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You're that one that gets one thing done per year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Perfectionists live in the weeds. They're the mice. There you yeah. go. Like that, the lady with the six month uh, newsletter. Right. Yeah. All yeah. Right. Number eight. And finally, one word Matthew Dix. Evolving. I, I, stagnation terrifies me. I try to, I'm trying to continue to evolve every day in something, into something new. Beautiful. You and I are very aligned in that way. Okay, Matthew, how can the people reach you, find out more about you, connect with you, uh, order the book? Yeah, well, you can get my books wherever books are sold, just, you know, bookstores and online retailers. They're all in those places. And you can find me at MatthewDix.com and on social media, I'm at MatthewDix and all the places. So I'm easy to find wherever you are. You can find me there too. Beautiful. Okay. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on The Truth Prescription. I will sign off as I always do that the truth will set you free if you let it.